0: If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 25. Our passage for the second week in a row is Matthew 25:14 to 30. Uh, in this passage, Jesus is still answering the disciples' question about the end times following his prediction of the temple's destruction. Uh, once again, they want to know when the final period of tribulation will begin and what the sign of Jesus' coming will be at the end of it. Jesus has already explained that His final return in judgment will be accompanied by many signs. No one, uh, While it will be accompanied with many signs, no one knows when the final period of the tribulation will begin, not even Jesus Himself. He's further explained that at that time, there's going to be a gathering together of believers out of the world to deliver them from the final expression of God's wrath. This event is known today as the rapture. And Jesus has explained that the disciples need to prepare themselves for that event. Our passage this morning falls into this latest section of the discourse. Uh, Jesus is exhorting the disciples to be ready for the rapture. He's already explained in the parable of the faithful and the wicked servants that that since the rapture is imminent, then then the disciples need to be ready for it to occur at any moment. However, he's also explained in the parable of the ten virgins that it may come later than they expected. And so they also need to settle in and prepare for a potentially long wait. In today's passage, Jesus continues to explain the criteria by which it will be decided who will be taken and who will be left. He's already explained that those who do not adequately prepare themselves both for a near and a far rapture will be shut out of the kingdom, and we've seen why this is so. Now, Jesus continues to delineate the criteria even further with the parable of the talents. Let's go ahead and begin by reading this passage together, Matthew 25:14 to 30 For it will be like a man, Jesus says, going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went out at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had made the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money uh, with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A few weeks ago I was scanning my my Twitter feed when I came across a link to a video clip on the assurance of salvation. Uh, The speaker in the clip was D.A. Carson, the theologian who I have the, the utmost respect for. He was speaking at a conference, and the topic apparently had to do with the sufficiency of faith in salvation. And the way he illustrated the point was like this, and I'm just going to paraphrase this, of course, but he said there are two Hebrew men, Simon, uh, I'm sorry, Smith and Brown, and they're discussing the Passover that's about to happen. So go back to the days of Egypt, they're in the Exodus, they're discussing the Passover that's about to take place. And as that's going on, Smith says to Brown, Aren't you kind of worried about what's going to happen tonight? And Brown replies, well, of course not. Why would, I, why would I be worried? I mean, you heard Moses, right? So long as we put the blood above the doorpost, we're going to be fine. You've done that, haven't you? You guys are ready for tonight, right? And Smith says, well, yes, of course. I'm not stupid. I put the blood on the doorpost. I know I'm supposed to do that. But at the same time, aren't you at least a little worried about what's going to happen tonight? I mean, just think of, of, of everything that's gone on in the past few days. I mean, the Niles turned to blood, frogs and locusts swarming across the land, hail and fire cast down to the earth, the death of the livestock, the darkness. Doesn't that make you at least a little bit nervous about what's going to happen tonight? I mean, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord is going to come through the camp tonight. And I, don't, I know what God said, and I've put the blood there, but all the same, I'm still pretty scared. I'll be glad when this night is over. And then Brown says back to Smith, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. Carson says that night the angel of death passes through the land and he asks the question, which man lost his son? Well, what do you think? Which man lost his son? And the answer is neither, right? Neither man lost his son. Because as Carson points out, and I quote, Death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. And I absolutely love this illustration. Indeed, I loved it so much I immediately started sharing it with others. In fact, if you were at the last women's study, you've actually seen the clip because I shared it with my wife. And I said, you need to share this with the ladies because this illustrates the point that you're trying to make tonight. And you know what I love about that illustration? What I love about it is that it explains so vividly and so succinctly the principle that we discussed from the parable of the talents last week. If you remember, I said last week that the parable of the talents is ultimately a parable about salvation. We know this because the language used to describe the third slave's punishment in this parable is the same kind of language that Jesus uses to describe hell. Likewise, when Jesus speaks of the first two servants' rewards, He describes it as them entering the joy of their master. That's important because just a few days earlier, Jesus shared a very similar parable, the parable of the minus, and in that parable there's no discussion of entering into the joy of the master. Instead, the servants are awarded authority over particular cities. And it would seem that the parable of the minus is a parable about heavenly reward, whereas the parable of the talents is about salvation. And this fits the context. The disciples are wanting to know how to prepare for the end. And as Jesus explains the rapture, He's telling them the guidelines that He's going to use to determine who will be taken and who will be left. The wicked slave at the end of Matthew 24, the five foolish virgins at the beginning of Matthew 25, and the third slave here in the parable of the talents are all consigned to hell. They're left. The faithful slave... The five wise virgins and the first two slaves in this parable, they all enter into heaven. They're taken with the master when he comes. The parable of the talents, then, are a kind of study guide that allow the disciples to know how to get ready for the exam. They certainly, that certainly seems to be how Matthew is employing these parables. He's recording them so that his readers can know how to ready themselves for the imminent coming of Jesus. Well, last week I said that there are three guidelines in this parable that Jesus uses to instruct his disciples about how to prepare for the rapture. And in the first guideline, I said that what this parable tells us is that admission will be determined by faithfulness, not results. By faithfulness, not results. Again, this parable is about the criteria that will be used to enter the kingdom. And one of the great comforts that we discover in this parable is that the first slave and the second slave, though they each produce different results, are both told, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. No distinction is made between the two slaves. Though one produce more than the other, they both get to enter into the joy of their master. The reason for this, I explained, is because while there are rewards that will be distributed in heaven based on what a disciple does here on earth, as it relates to entrance into the kingdom, that is based on the righteousness of Christ alone. No one can enter by their own merit because God demands absolute perfection. He demands a score of 100% on every assignment, every quiz, every test. The student must get everything right to pass his class. And no one has done that save for Jesus Christ. Everyone else are all sinners. They all fall short of the glory of God. So the only way anyone can enter into the kingdom is on the merit of Christ's perfect score applied to them, which we know occurs by faith. So when the five-talent slave believes and the two-talent slave believes, it doesn't matter what they produced. They each have a perfect score in God's eyes because they both enter based on the same merit found in Christ. That's the same point that Carson is making in his illustration from the Passover. Once again, the reason why neither Brown's nor Smith's son dies is because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. That's the same idea that we discussed last week. I said a lot of times when it comes to salvation, we ask ourselves, have I done enough? And I said it's never about enough when it comes to salvation because it's not the size of our faith that matters, but the object. Again, the two-talent slave and the five-talent slave hear the same thing from their master. They both get to enter into the kingdom regardless of what they produced, just as both Brown's and Smith's sons were passed over despite the fact that Brown's faith was more resolute than Smith's. The reason is because when it comes to salvation, it's the sacrifice that serves as the grounds or basis of salvation, not the faith. Now, all that being said, here's the question I found myself asking after I watched Carson's illustration. I asked myself, what if Brown hadn't applied? What if he had not applied the blood to the doorpost? Remember, Brown is the one who has a resolute faith in the promises of God. He's the one that says, bring it on. What if he said, I know God can deliver us from the angel of the Lord, but then he didn't apply the blood to the doorpost? Would his son be spared then? And the reason why I asked myself this question was because the individual who shared this clip did so as a response to those who say, you must examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. And in that exhortation from Carson, his desire was to push the listener to, to, uh, or, or, um, to, to say that maybe, this, uh, maybe we're pushing too much emphasis in our works. This individual was responding to those who would say, you know, examine the fruit of your life as a measure of your faith. They're responding to them by saying, you never look to the fruit of your own life because the basis of your salvation is the blood of Christ. But here's the thing, if Brown had not applied to the, the, the blood to the doorpost, would his son still be spared? Absolutely not, right? God demanded that blood be put on the doorpost, and if Brown didn't do that, it doesn't matter how sufficient the sacrifice is, it doesn't apply to him. And why not? It's because he didn't respond to God's command. Now, does that mean that Brown in some way earned his son's salvation by putting the blood on the doorpost? Is there there merit in that action? Of course not. There's nothing about Brown's obedience that makes him worthy to be passed over. The merit is in the blood, not in Brown's obedience. Salvation is by grace. But if Brown does not apply the blood, then it doesn't matter what he thinks or feels or says. His son is not passed over. Yes, salvation is by grace, but it's by grace through faith. And that's what Brown practices when he not only says God will deliver, but then actually follows the steps that God designed for that deliverance. Salvation is by grace through faith, but not every profession of faith is necessarily an expression of saving faith. This is what James is getting at in James 2.24 when he says that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He's not saying that a person's obedience merits righteousness, but that obedience is the necessary result to faith. And to such a degree, he's saying, that if a person has not obedience, then you can also say that they have not faith. He even illustrates this with Abraham's willingness to offer up Isaac on the altar. It wasn't as if Abraham was saved then, When he offered up Isaac on the altar in Genesis 22, because in Genesis 15, it says that Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham was saved in Genesis 15. But what we see in Genesis 22 is that in the words of James, when Abraham did this, faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. That's all that James is trying to say. He's not saying that we're saved by the merit of our works, but that the presence of our works indicate the the true existence of our faith. As he says in James 2.26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You see, the individual who posted this clip misses the point. When someone says to you, examine yourself and see if you're in the faith, they're not asking you to question The sufficiency of Christ's merit. They're asking you to question the reality of your faith, the existence or the presence of your faith. Yes, the basis of salvation is the blood of Christ alone and not the works we produce by any means. At the same time, the question remains have you believed? There's, there's nothing about asking yourself that question that impugns the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. Listen, I know that God is faithful and true. The problem that I have is that I'm not. There's all kinds of wickedness and deception in me. So when I start to ask myself, am I really a Christian? It's not the character of Christ or the sufficiency of his merit that I'm impugning, it's me. It's my own sinful, wicked character. I'm asking myself, am I self-deceived? Have I convinced myself that I'm in the faith simply so that I feel good about the future without actually having to repent of my sin? And Jesus encourages us to ask questions like this in passages like the parable of the talents. Now, of course, I know what this individual is concerned about. You start looking to yourself for some type of assurance, and what's the problem you run into? You're a sinner, right? You're a sinner. And so the concern is that if we start asking ourselves, do I believe, and then try to answer that question based on our obedience, what's likely to happen? We're going to see all the sin in our life, and then we're going to come to the conclusion, I can't possibly be saved because I have so much sin. That's the concern that this person had when they posted the clip. They understand that if we ask ourselves, am I saved based on do I obey, then we're often going to struggle with assurance of salvation because of all the sin in our lives. But here's the thing. Jesus, he answers that issue for us with the first two slaves. With the first two slaves, he shows us that when we try to measure our faith by the level of our obedience, we're going about it the wrong way. Yes, we're still sinners, and so it doesn't work to ask ourselves, "Am I a Christian based on the level of our obedience, based on whether or not we have obeyed enough?" Enough isn't the issue. The two talent slave and the five talent slave both entered the kingdom. Mister Brown and Mister Smith both have their sons spared at the Passover because death doesn't pass over based on the intensity of the clarity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. So when it comes to determining the presence of faith, it's not about whether we have obeyed enough. Jesus, make him, Jesus himself makes this clear in this parable. If you go about trying to discover whether or not you're a Christian based on whether or not you've obeyed enough, yes, you will struggle with assurance of salvation. The concern that we would ever try to find assurance through that means is a very valid concern. So, faith is demonstrated by one's obedience. But it's not the amount of obedience that's taken into account. If it's not that, then by what standard can we determine whether or not our faith is real? If it's not by the amount, then then how do we measure that? I think Jesus answers this with the third slave in this parable. And what we find here is that it's not the quantity of faith that matters. It's not the quantity of faith that matters, but the quality. The obedience that comes by faith is of a completely different kind than the obedience that comes apart from faith. If I could illustrate it like this, just as there is real real gold, and then there's fool's gold, and it kind of looks the same, but obviously has very different worth. So also you have an obedience that comes by faith, and an obedience that does not come by faith. When it comes to salvation, it doesn't matter how much gold you have. What matters is simply that you're in possession of some genuine gold, real gold, not fool's gold. As long as you have that real gold, that actual living faith, in any amount, it's sufficient for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And likewise, no matter how much fool's gold a person may possess, no matter how much obedience they produce apart from faith, it's all still worthless in God's eyes. It is insufficient to get them into the kingdom of heaven. God doesn't care about the amount. He's just looking for the genuine article. Well, just as you can perform certain tests to distinguish real gold versus fool's gold, so also this parable is designed to give you the criteria to help you to figure out if you have the real thing or if you're deceived and still need to repent. And it should be clear, this isn't given to scare you or to make you feel uneasy about your salvation. Not necessarily, it's actually meant for the the opposite. It's designed to give you answers. It's designed so that you would know your status before God. So then how do we know whether or not we possess the genuine article, or put it another way, if admission is determined by faithfulness and not results, then how do we know if we're faithful? I think we see the answer in the second guideline from this parable, which is this. Guideline number two. Faithfulness is defined by action, not inaction. Faithfulness is defined by action, not inaction. Up to this point, our focus has been on the two obedient slaves. From these, we got the, our first guideline that admission into the kingdom is determined by faithfulness, not results. And again, this is a great comfort to us to know that we can enter into the kingdom even though we ourselves are not personally perfect. The problem, though, is that not everyone exhibits the sort of faithfulness found in the first two slaves. And that's what's demonstrated for us in the third slave in this parable. And he's going to be the focus of our attention moving forward. What's notable about this third slave is that he's not blatantly rebellious. At least not at first blush. He's not like the wicked servant at the end of chapter 24 who sees his master's absence as a license for sin. Quite the contrary. He's, he's actually petrified by the master's return. He's very much living in light of the coming of the master. So he's not blatantly rebellious per se. And in this sense, he's more like the five foolish virgins in the parable right before this one. Of course, what you have to remember about those virgins is that while they were not blatantly rebellious, all the same, when they asked the bridegroom to let them into the wedding feast, he told them, truly I say to you, I do not know you. We have to face the fact that Jesus says that this is how it will be with some people on judgment day. The problem won't be that they just willfully shook their fist at God in defiance. Some may even want to enter the kingdom, and yet God will still find something lacking in them, which leads Him to reject them. These are those individuals who Jesus describes in Matthew 7 by saying that they will actually cry out to Him on the day of judgment, saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things in Your name? And yet Jesus says that He will say back to them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness it is possible to be thus deceived, to want entry into the kingdom of heaven and yet still be denied. So then, how do we know if we believed? How do we know if we're ready? And that's what the third slave illustrates for us. He's included in this parable because there are some who don't believe, some who are not ready for the return of Jesus because they don't believe the righteousness of Christ does not apply to them. And this, th- this slave is included in this parable to distinguish those individuals from the first two slaves. So what does faith look like? What does it mean to be faithful? Well, here's what we discover from the third slave. Faithfulness is defined by action, not by inaction. You see, there's this common perception out there today, and it's as present today as it was in Jesus' day, that the way that one demonstrates faithfulness is by what they don't do. In Jesus' day, this was exemplified with the Sabbath regulations. That's how the scribes and the Pharisees responded to God's judgment of Israel's disobedience in the Old Testament. God judged them for their failure to keep Sabbath, and so the way they responded was by heaping additional restrictions onto the Sabbath to the degree that they would accuse Jesus and His disciples of... Uh, breaking the Sabbath simply for eating grains of wheat on the Sabbath. They would regard it as unlawful for Jesus to even heal someone on the Sabbath. You'll recall how Jesus rebuked the religious leaders for this approach to Sabbath. He reminded them that it was not unlawful to serve God on the Sabbath, which is what His disciples were doing. To serve God on the Sabbath was to fulfill the law. He likewise reminded them that God desired compassion and not sacrifice, and that therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In other words, he reframed the discussion of the law, not by what God restricted, but by what God commanded. They were not to define Sabbath merely by what was prohibited, but by what what it was meant to encourage and promote. Sabbath in its original design was a day of rest and worship. Yes, Israel had ignored that purpose by refusing to keep the Sabbath in the Old Testament. However, the Pharisees hadn't fixed the problem either simply by slapping some rules on top of it. If the purpose of the Sabbath is to rest and worship, then you don't have to actively work in order to violate the Sabbath. All you have to do is neither rest nor worship. And that's exactly what came out of the Pharisees' Sabbath laws. Their interpretation so added to the Word of God on Sabbath that Sabbath became a burden to the people rather than a blessing. We look back on these added Sabbath regulations with disbelief, of course. We wonder how the Pharisees could be so blind in their approach to righteousness. But the fact is, many Christians do the exact same thing today. No, they may not add regulatory minutiae on top of God's law, But they do take God's law, and from it they determine that righteousness is defined by what God prohibits. In other words, they define it negatively by what they don't do. Think about it. If I were to ask you right now, what makes you a Christian? What makes you a Christian? What would you say? I imagine you'd start by pointing to your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, which is where you should start. This is what defines a Christian. But that's not what I mean. What I mean is, what distinguishes you from the unbeliever? How am I supposed to know that you're a Christian? Or for that matter, how do you know? What makes you think that you're not one of the people who are going to be pounding on the door to get in, only to hear the Master tell them, truly I say to you, I do not know you. What visible manifestation of your faith demonstrates that you've placed your faith in the right object? Would your list go something like this? Well, I don't cheat on my wife, and I'm not verbally or physically abusive. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't steal from my employer. I obeyed the speed limit and other laws, even when no one is watching. I respect authority. I always do what I'm told. I don't lie, at least not most of the time, at least apart from maybe the occasional white lie. I don't do drugs. I don't get drunk. And in general, I'm not rude. I try to be nice to people. If that's your list, or if your list is something like that, then I hate to break it to you, but that's not good enough. You've got to do better than that. None of that necessarily means that you're a Christian. And why not? Well, it's because faithfulness isn't defined by inaction. It isn't defined by what you don't do. It's defined by action. It's defined by what you do positively. This is made evident with the third slave in this parable. Jesus doesn't explicitly state what the, the talent in this parable represents. We'll have to kind of figure that out on our own. What we do know is that it is in some way able to multiply. It's able to produce results. You see that concept within the context of Matthew. And probably the most natural reaction is to assume that this is a reference to evangelistic outreach. You know, from Matthew 16, that, that, that Jesus trained up the disciples for the express purpose of serving as the foundation of His church. In other words, He selected, called, and trained these men in particular because they were going to be the seed that would bear much evangelistic fruit. We see Him sending them on a mission for that purpose in Matthew 10. In Matthew 13, as He explains the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, it's all centered around the concept of evangelistic progress, and He envisions this large plant ultimately springing out of this tiny seed, this small, insignificant group of disciples. Of course, you jump to the very end of Matthew, and it concludes with Jesus flatly telling the disciples, "All authority has been granted to me on earth. On, on, uh, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you." That's more or less the final punchline of Matthew. That's the parting shot we're to leave the book understanding that the resurrection means that we should go about making disciples. So this is probably the most natural reading of the meaning of the talents. In this case, the parable would indicate that if one is not engaged in the evangelistic task, then they're not a true disciple. The only problem with this interpretation is the third slave's reaction to the master over this talent. Look at verses 24 and 25. In verse 24, he tells the master, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So far, so good, right? If we're thinking about this from an evangelistic perspective, that fits the idea that Jesus is transferring this responsibility to make disciples to the disciples in his absence. The problem comes in verse 25 when the slave continues, So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Clearly, the issue here is that the slave didn't earn interest with the talent. The problem that I have is that I just have a hard time envisioning someone who won't evangelize because they fear God. I mean, sure, there's lots of people who don't evangelize out of fear, but it's pretty much always a fear of man that leads to paralysis. There are very, very few people who would not evangelize out of a fear of God. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a kind of paralysis by analysis that can come when a disciple is so concerned with making a mistake in the way they share Christ that they end up doing nothing. But not only is that incredibly rare, but even then, I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone would assume that they're doing the right thing then by not evangelizing. And that's what we have here. This slave believes that by hiding the talent... He's actually doing the right thing. They're so afraid. He's so afraid of his master that he assumes that the best course of action is to do nothing. I just can't imagine anyone thinking that this is the case with evangelism. Even the most cautious of disciples would recognize that God wants us to tell people about Jesus, that it's a good thing to tell people about Jesus and not a bad thing. Not so with the slave in this parable. this parable. Whatever the talent is, they reason that the best course of action, the right thing to do with the talent, is nothing. They just hold on to it. And there are some other problems with an evangelistic reading to the, to the talent too. It seems odd, for instance, to conclude that it's evangelistic responsibility when it's distributed the slaves to the, to the three slaves in different amounts. It also seems odd to consider that an unbeliever is going to be judged by their failure to evangelize, as if that's something that God's going to hold them accountable for, even apart from any sort of belief in the gospel in the first place. I also have a hard time trying to understand how the slave thinks they'll lose the talent, if that's a reference to the gospel. Uh, I'm not saying that there's not some sense in which you could say that we can obscure the gospel by proclaiming it wrongly. It just seems like a stretch to apply that here and say that it results in a loss of the talent. I mean... You know, if you proclaim the gospel wrongly in one situation, that doesn't mean that you can't share the gospel anymore, right? In that sense, the talent can't really be lost. And then on top of that, how would a disciple return the talent to the master if it's a, re- if it's a reference to evangelistic responsibility or even gifting? And then how is the third slave's talent transferred to the first slave at the end of the parable? That just doesn't make any sense. So there are a few objections with that sort of interpretation to the passage, but but most of them can be answered in one way or another. The one objection that I I just really can't answer is why a disciple would ever actually think that as it relates to the gospel, God wants us to do nothing with it. That that's the course he actually prefers us to take. And that's what we have in this parable with the third slave. He thinks he's done the right thing. He's discharged his stewardship by keeping his talent. The severity of the Master drove him to conclude that that's what the Master wanted him to do, to hold ground and keep what was his safe until his return. I don't think that reaction fits a solely evangelistic stewardship. I do, however, think it fits this general approach to righteousness that I referred to just a moment ago. There are people who, out of fear of the severity of God, go on the defensive when it comes to righteousness. The Pharisees, of course, are one example of that. They took God's rebuke over the Sabbath, and rather than taking that to mean that God wanted them to finally pay attention to that day and do something positive with it, instead, they took it to mean that they needed to add more regulations to the day. And they even did that to the degree that they did not think it was even right to do good on the Sabbath. Likewise, you have many people today who, out of fear of God, are driven to a kind of holy paralysis. Meaning, they assume that God is pleased by what they don't do, rather than by what they do. They define righteous negatively, rather than positively. And if we're standing within the context of Matthew, you'll note that this is something that Jesus also addressed earlier in this Gospel. In the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus attacks the Pharisees' position on righteousness, who again defined righteousness as a bare minimum standard that a person must keep. Jesus flips that whole thing on its head by saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And then he raises the bar by driving to the motives of the heart. What we discover is that according to Jesus, righteousness isn't defined so much by what we do as much as who we are. What's required of us is an inner transformation of the soul where impure motives are put off entirely and replaced with holy desires. He says not only should we not murder, not only should we not even get angry, he says we should seek peace with those who have something against us. We're not the offended party party in that scenario either. They are. It's the other person who's offended. Righteousness means taking the first step in that situation and seeking reconciliation even when we're not the one who's been wronged. Not only should we not swear falsely, try to manipulate people with our promises, we should simply say yes or no. We speak the simple truth. Not only should we not retaliate when wronged, we should actually return evil with good. Not only should we love our neighbors, he says, we should love our enemies too. Again, Jesus takes the common understanding of the law And then he reverses the polarity. The Pharisees defined righteousness by what a person doesn't do. Jesus says, You've got this completely backwards. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Are you kidding me? It doesn't take any kind of special motivation to do that. That's not a sign that a person has repented. Even unbelievers can do that, he says. They're motivated solely by their own sinful desires. They can love their neighbor. No, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Jesus defines righteousness like that. And then he kicks off that sermon by saying, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He makes all of that a salvation issue. And that's the issue he's addressing over in the parable of the talents, isn't he? He's talking about who will and who will not enter the kingdom. You see, I don't think we're supposed to read the parable of the talents and assign any one particular symbolic meaning to the talents in the parable. Jesus is just using this story to illustrate the point at the end. Uh, the point at the end being that the one who has, to the one who has, the more will be given and he will have an abundance. And to the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus used this principle back in Matthew 13 in relation to the parables of the kingdom. There it served to explain why he spoke in parables. The idea was that those who had ears to hear would, would have the meaning of the parables disclosed to them, while those who rejected his message would not get any further data about the kingdom. They refused to respond to the more basic information. Therefore, Jesus refused to share anything more with them. Instead, he would speak in riddles, practically, to confuse them. Only those who had responded to what he said would receive the information he offered about the kingdom. Thus, to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, and the one who does not have, even what he has, will be taken away. This is how God works. When a person responds to his word with belief and repentance and faithfulness, He is eager to shower blessing down upon them. However, when a person rejects His word, then he responds by taking away what little blessing he's already given to them. That can be in the form of a confused revelation as in the parables on the kingdom or it can come in the form of judgment. We can see what the blessing in the parable of the talents is. It's entry into heaven. That's given to the one who responds in faithfulness. Because of his faithfulness, more will be given to him in the form of heavenly life and reward. Meanwhile, the one who does not respond in faithfulness, they're cast into hell. There's the, even what he has will be taken away. There's some potential kind of authority that the third slave could have received as a result of his faithfulness, but since he was not faithful, that authority is instead transferred to the one who is faithful. I don't think you're supposed to look at the talent in the form of any particular actual tangible item in our possession right now. Rather, it's a stand-in both for a stewardship and a reward. The one who is faithful over a little will be set over much. The one who is not will have even what he has taken away. And the responsibility he could have received will instead be transferred to the one who is faithful. So then, what are the talents? I think they could be anything that could be used for God's glory. That's the purpose of this life, to bring glory to God. We do that certainly through evangelism, but we can do that through any number of other things as well. For instance, back in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus said that we should let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So simply living righteously has the potential to bring glory to God and so bear fruit. We'll see here in the next passage that Jesus is again going to talk about judgment and there He's going to pass judgment based on whether or not someone showed mercy to His disciples. You go back to the parable of the faithful and the wicked servants, and the faithful servant was faithful because while the master was away, he gave food to the household at the proper time. This is one way to bring God glory and so bear fruit, simply loving the body of Christ. So I think the talents can be a number of things. It can be our time, our money, our gifts, our energy. Literally anything and everything that has been entrusted to us by God has been given to us as a stewardship to advance His glory across the earth. And some are given less, and some are given more, according to their ability. But here's the thing. However you do it, however you do it, you cannot advance God's glory by doing nothing. And please understand what I mean here. I'm not saying simply get busy, join a cause, something like that. I'm not talking about mere activity. What I mean is God is not glorified simply by the things you don't do. Go back to the list I gave you a moment ago. I'm not verbally or physically abusive to my family. I don't steal from my employer. I don't break the law. I don't lie or gossip. I'm not rude. I'm I'm generally nice to people. Guess what? An unbeliever is able to do all the things on your list. An unbeliever is able to do all the things on that list. In fact, most of that list would probably describe many, if not most, unbelievers. That was Jesus' whole point in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, for if you love those who love you, what reward, note that, what reward do you have? He says, do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. He's talking about reward when he says that. And he says, it doesn't take anything special to say, I'm going to love my family. That's only natural. I mean, even Hitler had a mom and he probably sent her flowers on his birthday. On her birthday, rather. That doesn't make him a good person, right? So you've never murdered someone. Congratulations. Neither have the vast, vast majority of unbelievers. Doesn't mean they're going to heaven. This is Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount. When God prohibits something, it doesn't mean you're necessarily righteous if you don't do it. It just means you're not necessarily sinning. I mean, you can go your whole life without murdering someone, but Jesus explains if there's still anger in your heart, you're still guilty enough to go to hell. You see, we have such a diminished view of sin that very often we don't even know what righteousness is anymore. How did did Jesus define righteousness? He defined it not by a prohibition, but by a command You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You fall short of that then you fall short of God's perfection. That's how he defines righteousness. By what you should do. Not simply by what you shouldn't do. We think people go to hell because they lie or cheat or steal. No, they go to hell because they do not worship. They go to hell because they do not love. And it's because they do not worship, it's because they do not love that they lie or cheat or steal. That doesn't mean that you necessarily love simply because you don't lie or cheat or steal. Just as it didn't mean that the Pharisees were necessarily keeping Sabbath simply because they didn't do any physical labor. So suppose you don't cheat on your taxes. So what? Does God get glory for that? When you define righteousness like that, do other people give Him praise for your good works? No, they don't. And do you know why not? It's because it isn't special. Unbelievers can be motivated into obedience by the threat of the law as much as anyone else. I can tell you that personally, I was an incredibly obedient student growing up. My teachers loved me. But I didn't do any of that to bring glory to God. I just liked to be praised. I hated getting in trouble. That's all. Can you see what I'm saying here? No one is going to look at your life and go, gee, what's the deal with him? Something's different about that guy just because you don't do evil. That's expected. That's the bare minimum. What brings glory to God is when you do righteousness. So I think this is what Jesus is driving at in this parable. The talents, they don't represent any single particular thing. They merely illustrate the responsibility we all have to use what's been entrusted to us for God's glory. And what this means is that while the first two slaves illustrate that admission to the kingdom is defined by faithfulness, not results, what's brought out in the judgment of the third slave is that faithfulness is defined by action, not inaction. He believes in his mind, this third slave, he believes in his mind that he's doing the right thing by safeguarding his talent. He believes that the best course of action is to do nothing. When the master returns, however, he receives a rude awakening. Far from being pleased by his inaction, the master is actually angered by it. He doesn't praise the third slave for his shrewdness. He condemns him for his laziness. Now, we're going to dig a little deeper Uh, when we get into the third guideline in this parable. And that's where we will see the connection between our faith and the kind of obedience that I've been describing today. Again, when Jesus discusses the criteria that will be used to determine who will be taken and who will be left, He does point to a disciple's works. However, that's not to say that salvation is by works. He's merely noting that faith produces works, and as I think we've seen, it produces a particular type of work. That's what we've seen sketched out over the past two weeks. It's not the quantity of our works that Jesus indicates he's going to look at, but the quality. Faith, in whatever amount, ex- in whatever amount it exists, produce, it produces a particular type of obedience. It's an obedience defined not by inaction, but by action. When we get to the third guideline, we'll see why this is. We're going to look at this third slave again, and from him we'll learn why genuine faith is able to produce a positive expression of obedience that the counterfeit is not able to muster. I don't want you to miss this point. Jesus will look for faith at his return. That will be what gains a person access to the kingdom. It'll be by faith alone. All Jesus is noting here is that there is a that there are particular external indicators of true faith that can help us to discern whether or not we have exerted that faith yet. The question that you need to ask yourself based off of what we've heard today is, have I believed? This passage, this passage was written so that you can examine yourself. It was written so that you can reflect and know whether or not you are ready for the return of Christ. So are you? Are you ready? Do you believe? What we've seen today is that the way you'll discover the answer to that question is not by the things you don't do, but by the things you do. Faithfulness is not proven simply by the fact that you don't steal from your employer, but by whether or not you take what you earn and graciously, generously share it with others. It's proven not by the fact that you're not a cruel spouse, but by whether or not you love your spouse, even when they're unlovable. It's proven by whether or not you care about them enough to actually take an active interest in their spiritual well-being, not just when they make you upset. Faithfulness is proven not by whether or not you have right doctrine, But by whether or not you graciously and patiently pursue those who don't. Or by whether you exercise your doctrine by reaching out to those who don't believe. Step back and ask yourself what things do I do in my life simply because of my love for the Master? Not what things do I refrain from out of fear of Him? Is there anything at all that you, can, that you can look at and say, yes, I love others in this way because of Jesus? If so, that would be a sign of genuine faith. Again, the point here is not about amount; It's not about perfection. The point is that there should be at least some fruit in your life of sincere worship, sincere love, where you're moved to glorify your master with the things you've been given, not just huddle in a corner and wait until he returns. I don't think that should be incredibly hard to discern. I know that when I came to faith, it was obvious. I I could look back on my life and I could see that when I asked myself why I thought I was a Christian, it was defined by a lot of things, all of which I didn't do. And there was absolutely nothing in my life that came as an expression of worship. All the things I did in, quote, obedience, I did so long as they were convenient. There was no understanding that my life was a stewardship entrusted to me for the service of my Master. So I don't think this is impossible to discern so long as you understand that the standard is not the quantity of obedience but the quality you should be able to see if the faith you claim is genuine or not. And on that note, I would just point out that no matter who you are, no matter who you are, you do fall short of what God desires from you. None of us, none of us love and worship to the degree that God demands. And with that in mind, if you can ask yourself this question, and you can determine that, yes, my faith is real, and I would imagine that most of you here in this room, your faith is real. Even then, at the very least, use what we're talking about here today to evaluate those aspects of your walk that need improvement. Take stock of your time, your energy, your relationships, your gifts, your resources, and ask yourself, am I only seeking to do the bare minimum with what God has given me? Am I assuming, for instance, that because I'm not a bad spouse, or because I'm not a bad parent, that I'm a good one? Am I defining what God expects of me merely by what I don't do with the things that He's entrusted to me? You have to recognize this. God has not given you the blessings you enjoy to use merely for your own purposes, simply with the added provision that they not be used in those ways that are displeasing to Him. Rather, he's given them all to use for his purposes, for his delight and glory, and with the added provisions merely explaining the most egregious offenses against that agenda. Where do you fall short of that expectation the most? What are the areas that need the most work? Identify the points of weaknesses. And then in probably a couple of weeks, we'll come back and explore how to see repentance in these areas take place. That third guideline is not just going to explain for us why the third slave does not act on behalf of his master. It also explains why the first two slaves do. So that's what we have in store ahead. We'll take a week off uh, next week to reflect on the meaning of the resurrection, and then we'll continue with the third guideline the week after that. Let's pray.